My name is Jana Champagne, and I am a cannabis nurse and an autism mom and founder of Autism Safe Haven, which is committed to cannabis-inclusive autism care resources. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is produced by Natural Learning Enterprises, a mission-driven company dedicated to enhancing critical thinking skills and public scientific literacy about life in the natural world. If you like Curious About Cannabis, consider checking out some of these other learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. Come on, Molly! It'll be an adventure! Phoebe called out as she followed Brother Toadstool. Brother Toadstool led Phoebe and Molly into a tunnel that went deep down into the ground. As they climbed into the tunnel, they found themselves getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Our new children's book, A Toadstool's Treasures, takes young readers on an adventure into the fun and fascinating world of fungi. Learn more and find mycology-related learning resources, games, and lesson plans for teachers and homeschooling families at toadstoolstreasures.com. Biodiversity loss due to habitat loss and fragmentation is rapidly increasing around the world with devastating consequences. Learn how you can help contribute to native habitat corridors in your community and reconnect with your wild neighbors at gardenwild.org. Oregon recently became the first state in the United States to legalize the medical use of psilocybin. As cities all over the country begin to decriminalize the use of entheogenic plants and fungi, it's time to have a serious discussion about psychedelics. The Serious About Psychedelics limited series podcast is coming soon. Learn more at SeriousAboutPsychedelics.com. You can learn more about Natural Learning Enterprises at naturaledu.com. And now, back to the show. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, So today, I'm really delighted to sit down with a friend and colleague of mine who appeared in one of the, I think, the very first episode. Yeah, the very first episode of the podcast we ever released. But I'm here with Jana Champagne. Uh, Jana, thanks so much for being willing to come back around and sit down with me again to talk ever more about cannabis science. Well, yes. Thank you so much, Jason. It's it's great to be back, and I will come and nerd out with you about cannabis anytime. So, <laughs> <laughs> I know there will be plenty of times, and I'm I'm really excited about this episode because one of the things that our listeners learned in the first episode was a little bit about your backstory, how you got into uh, studying cannabis, and one of the things we talked about but didn't spend a whole lot of time on was your focus on uh, finding ways to um, get better resources, um, better treatments for autism using cannabinoid therapies. And so in this episode, one thing I wanted to make sure to to highlight and really dive deep on is um, just the role that cannabis has to play within autism treatment and autism care, and then particularly um, to highlight this new project that you have going on, um, Autism Safe Haven. And so um, I guess initially we'll open it up since our listeners have already sort of been introduced to you. We'll just jump in. Uh, can you describe a little bit about what Autism Safe Haven is and 
how that came about, and then we'll just spin out from there. Sure. And, and just like always, Autism Safe Haven has spawned from my commitment to follow patient needs, and everything I do in the cannabis industry has has occurred due to that you know, organic drive and the passion for helping cannabis patients. And of course, the fact that I have a daughter with autism is a huge inspiration as well, and how much cannabis helped her uh, during her puberty crisis. It actually spared her out of home placement due to her severe autism behaviors, um, which included self-injury and aggressing on her caregivers and parents and completely destroying my house as well. And, uh, you know, she almost had to go into full-time outside care due to those behaviors and the safety issues and cannabis spared her that. And so, you know, that led to me working with even more families that have children with autism, oftentimes in crisis and seeing cannabis just work over and over and over for these children. Not only does it help to manage the symptoms of autism, but it often helps them to reduce the reliance on pharmaceuticals, some of which have just horrific side effects. Um, and also improve their quality of life and function. And, you know, when we dive a little bit deeper into the science, we learn that autism is supported by research as having endocannabinoid deficiency as one of the underlying causes of all of those symptoms. So we know that we're supplementing not only in a way that manages their symptoms and helps ease these crisis situations in families, but it's actually targeting some of the underlying reasons why autism occurs. Yeah. And... So just to um, lay a foundation here, how would you describe autism to somebody who has no family member or friend, you know, affected or anything like that? And they're kind of coming at this sort of new, how do you, how do you describe autism spectrum and some of the, um, I guess, some of the physiology and, and, and behaviors that are associated with it, someone who's kind of new? Sure. And so uh, autism is many, many things. And yeah. there's a saying that if you know one child with autism, you know one child with autism, because they can look very different just depending on the severity and where the impact lies. Um, you know, that's why we call it a spectra disorder. We have everything from the very low functioning, which oftentimes they're nonverbal even as adults, and they can be, you know, have the extreme behaviors, which of course I see those as communication because they can't communicate otherwise. Um, oftentimes they have intellectual and, you know, other severe impairment to things like executive function and need to full time mm -hmm. care all the way to the higher functioning, which, you know, they they actually have theorized that Albert Einstein had high functioning autism. Brilliant. You know, we have savantism where there's these just exceptional abilities and intelligence, but they might have social inadequacies or anxiety or different things that are limiting their function. So it's everything in between. Um, in fact, I think EDD and ADHD are now considered on the autism spectrum as well. So it, it comes in many, many forms. And my job as a nurse was to work with these families and try to pinpoint that child's specific needs, you know, depending on where they are on the spectrum and what their parents had helped prioritize and try to target that with cannabis. And depending on where they lie on this spectra, the regimen that I would recommend could look very different as well. So mm. it's really about just targeting them as individuals, which is what I try to do with all of my patients. Um, but with autism, it does get a little bit tricky. And, you know, as a nurse underlying autism, medically, oftentimes there are a lot of conditions that are overlooked. One of them being inflammation, which of course translates to pain. Um, and uh, and re realistically, it's it's a triad of imbalances 
in the neurological immune system and gut usually is what kind of triggers the autism to begin with. And this is where we're failing in mainstream medicine to put the pieces together because we've got the neurologist in his box and the GI mm-hmm. doctor yeah. in their box and the immunologist in their box. And nobody wants to look at how three, these three systems are intricately linked and how when one system starts to fail, it's going to impact the other two. And so that's with autism, it really does require a holistic approach if, you know, with, with any aspiration to improve the underlying cause and, and the approach it medically, I think is just the compassionate thing. I mean, if you had a child that was suffering pain and you weren't treating for pain, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, that's not the compassionate approach. And I say that because in the autism community, there is a lot of controversy about those that are treating autism medically um, as trying to change their children. And so it, you know, that's why I, I brought that piece in because I've actually had someone say, why are you treating your child with autism? Why can't you just accept her as she is? Well, my child is in extreme pain. Is it compassionate to accept her as she is and just accept that as part of autism? Or should we try to alleviate her pain and see if we can improve her function and quality of life? You know, to me, that's a no brainer. So. Yeah. And, uh, a point that you're really, um, honing in on here is the uh, communication piece mm-hmm. that, um, it can at times be very difficult to interpret behavior and if someone can't directly communicate what they're experiencing um it might be easy to kind of fall into that trap of like well maybe you know they're just expressing who they are and you know and that's just Mm -hmm. is what it is Mm -hmm. uh, when really there are other things going on that they just can't necessarily tell you so um what are some of the uh sort of physiological or genetic things associated with autism? Like, do we, where's the research at now as far as um, understanding um, some of the mechanisms in the body that that are going on here that you would end up targeting in a therapy? Right. Well, and so genetically, it's, it's interesting because, of course, with autism, we would love to have one answer. Like, this of is course. the cause. <laughs> it's yeah. just not that simple. There are dozens of causes of autism And in my experience, it's kind of a perfect storm of genetic mutations like MTHFR mutation is theorized to be present in 80% of kids with autism. Um, And there's several others that can impair production of glutathione, so they become toxic. There's a lot of contributors to chronic inflammation. Um, There's a lot of gut dysfunction and mutations that predispose those imbalances. It could be neurotransmitter balance mutations. Um, It can be a lot of different things, but that combined with environmental impact. So, Mm. you know, them being exposed to what they're genetically susceptible to to be harmed by. And and so I I really see it as a perfect storm and not just as this is what it is. Uh, It it can be many, many different things. And once again, that's why we do the, the, the individual approach is really optimal with autism. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, a situation like this highlights some of the um, deficiencies of our like medical and diagnostic terminology that we use one word to describe. Uh, even when we recognize that it's a spectrum, um, it can it can still be very confusing when you're using this term autism, and really you're you could be describing any number of things, any number of causes. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me think like. Um, there's several other things like this right now, like epilepsy is one that epilepsy is not a single thing. Um, There are some overlapping 
symptoms that are similar enough that it creates a spectrum. Bipolar is another one. Um, these like spectrum conditions that we sometimes oversimplify very quickly um, by talking about it. So that's, um, I think, very important to highlight and comes back into what you and I talk about all the time, which is individualized care, individualized medicine. And so um, before we specifically get into the, the cannabis side, are there, when you're working with somebody and trying to come up with a plan of attack on how to improve someone's quality of life, um, where does that where does that start for you? What kind of things are you interested in understanding um, to try to tease out um, what might be causing these behaviors or what might be causing this discomfort and that sort of thing so that you can then decide if cannabis should be involved and if so, you know, what kinds of cannabis and in, you know, what doses and all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, can you kind of explain what your thought process is when you um, have a new patient like that and you're trying to um, understand what's kind of underlying what's going on? Absolutely. And so my intake form basically wants to know from the patient, what is your diagnosis? What are your symptoms? What are your priorities? But then, mm. you know, holistic approach is always best. So I always, I also get into what is your diet like? What is your stress mm -hmm. management? Do you get exercise? Um, you know, medications, lab work. We want to know as much as we can to try to put this puzzle together and really put together a good regimen. Um, and with autism, it can be anything, like I said, from the ADHD where they're hyperactive or they have difficulty focusing in school or they have social um, delays and or social anxiety. It can look like sensory issues where they get really overstimulated if it's too bright or too mm -hmm. loud. Or even the under understimulation of sensory, where they're actually sensory seeking and and they want more input because their sensory has been dulled. Um, it can be speech delays or you know no speech at all. It can be um, you know a lot of meltdowns and frustration, which of course I consider communication. Mm -hmm. It can be a lot of different things, and so it really just it's it's trying to get a grasp on what's happening, what is the patient or the parent's priority, and trying to find a way to target that. And then oftentimes, you know, in my work, I do the nutrigenomic counseling as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when a parent will call, will call and they're in crisis, they don't want you to talk to them about their diet. So you're really just building a bridge and meeting them wherever they are and whatever they're ready for. And oftentimes it starts with, we want relief as soon as possible. So you start there. And then once you kind of de-escalate the situation and they're backing away from that crisis cliff, then you can come in and say, let's do some of this deeper work and let's start working on some of the underlying things that are happening here that could be contributing. And so then that brings in the ability to add other interventions that can improve quality of life as well. And that's definitely been the case with my daughter. So, And what are some of the common, um, I guess I'll say like conventional um, treatments and therapies? that um, are most commonly applied before, once again, we're taking baby steps towards the cannabis side, but um, right. what, do, what do most people go through um, in trying to seek help? Because you mentioned some of the pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. um, and the side effects and everything like that. So, so what does conventional autism treatment look like? You know, most doctors will, and I've actually had a couple look right at me and say, there's nothing to do here. There's nothing to fix here. Oh my gosh. Child in crisis. 
Um, they don't understand the medical approach. They don't understand that it is medical. They've been taught that it's a mental health disorder and like so many other mental health disorders, you know, there's no lab testing done. There's nothing to really try to pinpoint the underlying imbalance that's happening. It's just, oh, you meet this symptom list. So we're going to place this label on you and try a bunch of drugs, mental health medications and see what works. And sometimes they'll do like the gene site testing, which will tell you how they might metabolize different mental health medications, but that's still not telling, it's, it's not reflecting what is the neurotransmitter imbalance. And so there could be an instance where somebody is really high in serotonin and they put them, you know, because of their label, which really means nothing, they put them on a medication that could increase the serotonin and make them worse. And it's a lot yeah. of trial and error in the mental health community that way, which you know is really a disservice because we do have labs you can run to check neurotransmitter levels and look at underlying you know genetic mutations that might cause certain imbalances and approach it a little bit more intelligibly, but we just don't do that with mental health at all. And so currently, you know, as far as care homes and why autism safe haven became an answer, the approach is the pharmaceuticals that we talked about and physical restraints for behavior management. And this has led to home failures. This has led to children being hurt, harmed, and even killed in certain in other states, not in Oregon. But, you know, it's basically every parent's worst nightmare. And so my daughter is 18 now. I'm ready to back down as her primary caregiver. And there's literally no good options here. You know, she's utilizing cannabis. It's, it's an integral part of her being able to be optimally functional and have optimal quality of life. And if I were to put her in a home currently to get, you know, to, to step back from being that primary caregiver role, I would actually be on call to have to go administer the cannabis should she need it. And maybe even have to remove her from the property in order to do so. So it's not respite for the parents. Mm. That's interesting. So yeah, you're bringing up something that I bet a lot of people don't think about, um, which is that a lot, and this is the case with a lot of different residential care facilities, um, mm -hmm. whether it's something like this or in a separate project, something that I'm working on is um, looking at addiction treatment, uh, mm -hmm. residential facilities, a similar issue there. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, this situation, because of cannabis's federal legal status and because a lot of these residential care facilities are at least in part funded uh, by federal money or state money that's ultimately mm -hmm. tied to federal money, mm -hmm. um, a lot of times they really cannot touch cannabis um, can't administer cannabis, even if you have a medical card or something like that, like they really don't, uh, take that risk. And like in, um, some cases you even risk getting kicked out of a residential care facility if you're using cannabis, depending on where you're located and just how much of a sort of abstinence or kind of prohibitionist kind of stance they take. Um, and that can vary in, the, I mean, you know, we're here in Oregon, you and I live in Southern Oregon, which is a very different place compared to Northern Oregon, like the Portland, you know, area and the, the way <laughs> that care facilities and stuff would handle things or what they might be kind of lax on or not is, is very different. So even if you're in a state with legal cannabis, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that this stuff is just, you know, that you can do what you want or, you know, you find what works for you that you can just do it. Because um, there are all these other forces at play. There are. There are. And it, it is complicated, but we have found a loophole. So basically, um, a nurse can administer cannabis in a residential care home environment. And any caregiver, really, can mm -hmm. administer the cannabis. And so we're going to separate that out of 
the actual home care program, have that be a separate aspect, kind of an outsource so that we can still access the government funding to support this program and not have that be jeopardized. And, and there's, you know, I read about a, it was an elderly care home in New York, I think it was, that adopted a similar model where, mm. you know, they just keep it separate and then it's not a problem. Yeah. You know, they bill for the cannabis therapy, which, you know, that's the next problem. Like that's the only expense in this whole plan that is not covered by insurance so <laughs> that's that's really the only barrier in our program and and you know with my networking and, and my contacts I think we're going to get plenty of donations so I'm not too you know if I have to move to a property and grow for the these patients myself I will do so <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's at least a problem you can control and and manage um so this is this is a good segue then so um, and there's a lot that we've been talking about that I plan on spiraling back on, but focusing on what Autism Safe Haven is. Um, so can you describe, and once again, I really encourage people to go listen to our first interview where we talk about your, your background and everything. But in that story, you mentioned how when your daughter was in crisis, she was, um, you know, uh, uh, putting holes in walls and, you know, breaking things and just causing all of the structural damage. Um, and you had to make all of these modifications to your home. And that's sort of what led to um, this idea of like, you know, how could this, what you've gone through, your experience, how could it be turned into something that others could use and, and replicate and, and implement? So can you describe, um, maybe just starting, what um, modifications have you had to make uh, to your home? Just to give uh, people that are unfamiliar with this topic some perspective mm -hmm. on, um, you know, just what that looks like and what kind of investment that, that you know, really is. Yeah, it's pretty significant. Um, you know, my daughter, in her the height of her puberty crisis, she was suffering severe pain. She had no effective way to communicate that pain. So she was, uh, you know, self-injurious, which to me always translates as pain now, if, especially when there's communication issues. Um, but she was also just destroying the house. She, we had holes in every wall. We had holes through doors. Um, so part of the remodel was actually repairing the damage, but part of it was, was making this home stoic to those behaviors. And so we literally have the walls are half-inch plywood with beadboard over the top. Mm. Uh, we have tempered glass windows. We have a six-foot fence around the property. We have special locks on all the doors, so it, it has to be facilitated exit and entry. Um, you know, all kinds of other little safety modifications that we have built in, like the bathroom is floodproof, and you know, all kinds. Yeah. It's not ADA, but it's pretty darn close. The nice thing is that we did the remodel in a way that it did not impair the. And I don't think you've been here before, have you, Jason? You live no. walk away. You'll have to come check it out sometime. Like nobody would know that this was a reinforced home. It, it still maintains the appearance of a house, a regular old house. And so that to, to us was very important as well. We didn't want it feeling institutional. Uh -huh. So after doing all of that, you know, it just makes sense to to extend the the benefit of of what we have built here to others in need in the community. And so that's really part of the drive as well is just, you know, this worked 
for managing her behaviors. It, you know, she didn't get that, you know, that cause and effect is so huge in autism and she didn't get that, oh, I just punched a hole in the wall and I was a hole in that wall. <laughs> you know, she wasn't getting that positive reinforcement in return. Yeah, yeah. Huge for that. And actually with COVID, you know, we're thinking about this home as a, as kind of an, an emergency intervention for those kids in crisis, because what we want to do is bring in kids uh, and, you know, start weaning, start them on the cannabis, hopefully weaning the pharmaceutical, doing things like ABA behavior assessment and putting together a plan for them and training the caregivers. So it's optimal in a lot of different ways other than just the cannabis, but then research that and compare it, compare it, the cost mm -hmm. of this program compared to what's happening right now if a child with autism in Medford goes into crisis, it's very likely they're going to end up staying in the emergency room for several weeks. And this is supposed to be, you know, emergency room, you're supposed to be in there just a few hours, never more than 12. And they're staying in there for weeks at a time because they literally have no place to put these kids. And so as far as, you know, showing that it's cost effective and showing the research that this is the better way to do it, I think that's, that's going to be a good first target for this home. Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna take a pause real quick. I've got the baby monitor right next to me, and I'm starting to hear uh, oh, uh, into the other room. I forgot to turn it off. Just a second. <laughs> there we go. Sorry no, about that. Well, it's just kind of like one of our normal conversations, just recorded. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. I know. The opportunity to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna adjust this while I'm at it. Okay, cool. Um, and what, so all of those changes that you listed, what's, what level investment is that, um, you know, around how much does that cost to overhaul a house like that? Yeah, at this point, we're probably at about 50,000. Yeah, wow. And there's still a little bit left to do, um, not much. But, you know, this is part of why we built Autism Safe Haven as a nonprofit. Our 501c3 application has been submitted, and we have a 501c3 fiscal sponsor in the interim. So if somebody were to donate before we have that, they still get the federal tax deduction, which is nice. Oh, nice. We're also building, uh, I'm in the process of building several for-profits to feed the nonprofit as well. Um, one of them being a B Corp um, that includes unity formulas which is my new product line and uh i don't get a penny of commissions from that it's all feeding autism safe haven and it's symptom targeted medical quality and we're building a practitioner resource starting with that product line and it, that's going to be the b corp that feeds autism safe haven and we're going to have like a property management company and we're going to have the caregiver agency and the nurse agency all of that the profit from all of those that's left over is actually going to be feeding the nonprofit and those we serve nice yeah, nice. we, you know, we have government funding now, but with the way things are going, we don't want to be fully reliant on that. So we're trying to really build a sovereign business that's, you know, if the government funding goes away, we, it'll still continue to serve these residents. Yeah. And so now um, coming around to where cannabis fits into the picture. So um, one thing you mentioned is that uh, depending on how symptoms are presenting, what behaviors are at play, and what goals someone has for treatment, um, that their cannabis or cannabinoid therapies could look very different uh, person to person. Mm -hmm. um, so can you, I don't, I don't even know where the, the right starting point is for this, but can you describe um, 
how how does cannabis influence certain major um, expressions of autism? And there's different. Obviously, we talked about inflammation as one, and um, and particularly like neuroinflammation, brain inflammation, um, and then also um, some of the the communication issues and behaviors. There's all of these sort of like related and interconnected, but distinct sort of <laughs> chunks of symptoms, for lack of of better words. Um, so let's start to kind of like dive into the science of all of that. How does cannabis, or we, if we want to break it down to like THC and CBD, um, how do cannabinoids um, influence these various aspects um, of autism, and and what would send you on uh, one course versus another in in how you would use cannabinoids? Yeah, well, and that's that's a great question. And, and first and foremost, it's an assessment of the individual and a weighing of the risk versus benefit yeah. the different compounds of cannabis. Because as we know, there's research supporting that THC in childhood and adolescence can create neurodevelopmental issues later in life. Um, and so we're always cautious about that. If, if a patient uh, has the genetics for schizophrenia or schizophrenia in the family, which is sometimes common with autism, then we're really careful about the THC compound, which you know is known to potentially trigger schizophrenia. I know that that's all still kind of pending research and we're seeing some of it be rebuttaled, but, you know, as a nurse and a mom, my approach is always most conservative. If it's possible, I'm assessing it and weighing that out. So that's first and foremost. Um, Aside from that, if somebody doesn't have those risk factors, then, you know, THC is something that I have found to be very helpful for things like deadening sensory the sensory filter, if it's too sensitive and, and they're getting overstimulated by the smallest little thing, that can really help. It can certainly help with mellowing frustrations and behaviors and pain um, and just de-escalating some of these situations. In fact, I know it's controversial, but you know sometimes I'll even recommend inhaled THC sure. as a way to de-escalate uh, a building behavior. For the rapid onset. Yes. I mean, 10 seconds. I mean, when you consider sublingual is usually 10 to 15 minutes and you see a child ramping up to a full tilt behavior, uh, you know, every minute counts, every minute counts. And, and of course, that I always advise that that doesn't replace the more medical uh, forms of cannabis that will go along with that protocol, like tinctures, but it can certainly be a powerful tool. Well, it's kind of like the uh, the fire axe behind the glass uh, as needed break glass <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> i tell this so my daughter she has a, a thc vape pen and she calls it her straw because that's how we taught her to use <laughs> kind of like a straw and uh and to this day she still really struggles with hormone fluctuations during pms week mm-hmm. really emo every little thing is a big thing and you know she's learned how to self-manage fairly well and she's learned how to control a lot of her behaviors herself um but once in a while man she'll ask for straw and we go running for it like here take your straw (laughs) so it really is a great tool and um you know there's just no room for stigma when you consider that sometimes the full tilt behaviors can be uh you know somebody can get hurt somebody Mm -hmm. hurt when they're out of control my daughter's behaviors before cannabis a meltdown would look like 
sometimes up to three hours of, you know, yelling, screaming, kicking, biting, uh, you know, destroying everything that she could get her hands on. Uh, she would physically wear herself out and just pass out at the end of it. So when you yeah. can see that now a behavior looks like, you know, two or three minutes of her ramping up and being upset, if we're on top of it and, you know, the exception would be like in the middle of the night when we're, we might not, we might miss the ramp up and then she's full tilt by the time we get in there. But, um, you know, we're, we usually have it managed in 10 or 15 minutes at the max. And that's, yep. that's, she needs a timeout to, to really center and ground, you know? So look at the difference. I mean, it's amazing. And, and she's not on any mental health pharmaceuticals, none at all. So and I was, I was going to ask about that as far as which, um, which drugs often get prescribed. Are those like, are they prescribing like antipsychotics or you, you kind of alluded to SSRIs earlier when you talked about serotonin. Um, uh, so what are, what are some examples of those pharmaceuticals that, um, someone with autism might be taking? Uh, Clonopin, Depakote, oh, uh, psychotics, uh, antidepressants, anxiolytics, benzodiazepines, very, very common. And all, all a lot of like subduing, deadening sort of focus, it seems like just based on some of the ones you listed, Clonopin and yeah. Sedatives. So there, so these kids are, are not the result is not good quality of life. They're gorked out. They're drooling on themselves. They're not able to think clearly. They're not able to function very well. They're fuzzy at best. They're not the, they're not giving, given the opportunity to meet their best potential with those drugs. You know, not to mention the side effects of so many of the extrapyramidal symptoms. You know, I've, I've seen cases where, where a child will take something like Depakote mm -hmm. and the very first time they start having tics as a side effect of that. It can be facial grimacing, it can be licking around the mouth, it can be movement ticks, it can be all kinds of stuff, um, you know, really impairing quality of life. And sometimes even if you stop the medication immediately, that side effect can be permanent damage. That is yeah. ongoing. So these are not light medications. And, you know, another instance that I saw was a child who was on benzodiazepines three times a day went into crisis, mom took him to the ER, and he tested negative for benzos. They actually accused her of being non-compliant with his meds. So then they pushed benzodiazepines by IV, tested him again, he was still negative. So then the question becomes, okay, obviously this child is not metabolizing the, the benzos correctly. What is it turning into? And is that contributing to this problem or causing harm? We don't know. Right. I mean, these kids are, are guinea pigs. And it, 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 there's no science supporting these medications for children in general, much less kids with autism, and no clue what the long-term effects of these medications could be on them. None. Yeah, and that's, you know, we've talked about this before, but it, it highlights this weird uh, double standard that we often have in our society of uh, being willing to give children very serious, very <laughs> strong drugs. Um, but then when we get into this conversation of, uh, kids using cannabis medically, all of a sudden these feelings of fear and taboo and stuff often come about. And it's like, well, gee whiz, you know, compare, you know, think about it just molecularly. <laughs> like, com you know, think about what these kids are, are being exposed to. Um, cannabis is likely not something that in the grand scheme of things is is that worrisome uh when you when you're thinking about side effects and 
potential uh, toxic reactions um, um, and that sort of thing. And the the metabolism thing I find really interesting. Is that something that you've noticed? Um, that is is that a are metabolic issues a commonality um, within a population of it is yeah. Yeah, abs, abs, I, I know you can see me because I'm on screen and this is video or audio. So oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it's um, metabolic disorders and uh, trying to think the other thing. Um, mitoch mitochondrial dysfunction is really common. Mm. And so th these kids' bodies just are not functioning properly. There's all kinds of imbalances, you know, genetically and otherwise. And the way that they respond to things really can't be predicted like we would, you know, assume of somebody that doesn't have these issues. Yeah. So. Well, and and something you said earlier piqued my interest too when you, you talked about, you know, uh, schizophrenia and um, the link there. You know, new research is coming out showing the link between um, – issues with the gut microbiome and how the gut um, affects the immune system, which is directly um, now associated with schizophrenia and the way that um, the immune system essentially attacks parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, there's some interesting commonalities that I hear, you know, as you're talking about the stuff that expands into all sorts of other conditions and, and disorders and things too, that relate to metabolic issues gut health, inflammatory disease, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, the, the diagnoses are just labels. It's not telling mm -hmm. what are the underlying contributors. And it's really important to look at those and address those if you want to really achieve actual recovery, you know, and not just be managing symptoms, which is what the pharmaceuticals do. And cannabis has the potential to do that because it is of the imbalances, right? And one thing that I, I'm sitting here thinking about too, thinking about what the um, long-term residential care options are, uh, particularly for someone that's lower functioning, that has a lot of um, you know behavioral issues that are hard to get under control. And you talked about the, the issue of restraints, that commonly one of the ways that um, these residential facilities might uh, particularly with a child, deal with someone like that is put them in restraints and essentially just keep them still and they're not harming themselves. But I mean, one thing I wonder about is it's got to be so challenging to track um, the mental health of someone that's going through such a traumatic experience of trying to get that quality of life. Like, you're already dealing with a population of people that struggle with communication and then the treatments for their condition and the, the symptoms that they're trying to get control over. I mean, you're describing some pretty traumatic things. Some of these drugs, I know just from my own experience of taking different medications, especially with um, psychiatric drugs can be that alone can be traumatic. I can only imagine the experience of a child being put into restraints, especially if it has to happen repeatedly for long periods of time, like what is that doing to that person's mental health, which is not being appropriately monitored or measured because you're already dealing with a communication deficit? Right, right. 
it, it's really difficult. And, you know, there have even been instances, I'm trying to remember what state it was. I think it was like Alabama. There was an instance where a, one of their caregivers for their home had a history of assault and they missed mm. the background somehow. And he ended up doing a, a restraint on one of the residents and ruptured his spleen and killed him. So the physical restraints really just escalate the situation further. You know, the person being restrained is going to struggle more. The mm -hmm. person restraining is, you know, especially if if they're not able to maintain emotional neutrality, which is super important with autism. Uh, if they if they're getting agitated and upset or angry themselves because they've been hit or accosted or whatever it is, um, it can turn ugly really quickly. And so this is where that risk versus benefit of all of the options should be considered always for patients, mm -hmm. you know, and when you can, when you include cannabis in that assessment, you know, compared with the physical restraints, compared with the pharmaceuticals, compared with, you know, just about anything else, cannabis is going to be the safest bet. You know, those, those few considerations I mentioned earlier aside, it has far fewer side effects. I mean, the side effect is euphoria. That's actually going to benefit the situation, right? <laughs> so, it, you know, I always, I'm educating medical professionals now, as you know, and, and that's the approach I take with them is that we took an oath as medical professionals to do what's in the best interest of our patient. And that means assessing all of the possible options. If cannabis is an option and you include it in that assessment, it's the first logical choice to be mm -hmm. using autism before all of this other stuff. Because in addition to, you know, what we know about the harm of the, the pharmaceuticals that they're relying on, uh, the science supports that can, that autism is endocannabinoid deficiency, period. That, you know, there's other research that supports that certain mutations in the endocannabinoid system receptors actually predispose autism. There's other research that supports it and that anandamide deficiency, which is THC from the plant, acts just like anandamide. Anandamide deficiency predisposes autism. So they're, you know, on top of the symptom management and how, how it can help with their pain and, and improve their behaviors. And, you know, there's even certain compounds like CBG where children with autism, just a lot of them have a speech explosion when you add CBG. Oh, really? There. Well, you think about it, it's, it's a CB2 agonist. CB2 receptors will upregulate in the brain when it's inflamed. So it's like the brain is begging for CBG and then all of a sudden they're speaking. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, of things it can do in a much safer manner for these kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and going back to this idea of inflammation and, and inflammatory disease and everything, this all makes a lot of sense when you um, consider that some of the main roles that endocannabinoids and cannabinoid receptors um, play in the body um, is heavily, heavily tied into immune system functioning regulation and inflammatory signaling regulation and everything. And like you said, when a tissue is damaged or a cell is struggling or something, a lot of times it'll upregulate these uh, certain, depending on the situation, certain types of cannabinoid receptors. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, that's really, really fascinating um, and makes a lot of sense. And another thing that you said um, that I want to transition to, and I think it'll be very interesting, is on the caregiver side, mm -hmm. what are what are some of some of the 
I guess, um, tools that a caregiver has to take on themselves to appropriately handle like a crisis situation. I imagine that had to be um, quite a learning experience and big period of growth for you, just like the the different psychological and spiritual things that have to evolve and grow and develop to develop that patience and neutrality um, mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. So can you speak a, a little to that element? And I imagine that there is some room for cannabis to possibly even help the caregiver in oh. this in this dynamic. <laughs> Every parent of a child with autism, especially severe autism, suffers PTSD. Yeah. And, you know, whether it was it was watching their child regress and feeling like they lost their child, whether it was, you know, grieving the child they thought they were going to have and, and you know, shifting that paradigm, um, you know, whether it was going through a crisis with them and getting beat up on the regular and, you know, having other people have to peel, literally peel your child off of you because they've attacked you. Um, it definitely helps the parents as well. It helps them process the trauma and release the trauma. And, you know, with autism, that emotional neutrality with behaviors that I was talking about is so important. And I first read about that in a book Uh, written by an autism therapist of like 30 years. It was 10 things you can do right now to help your child with autism, I think was the title. And I don't even remember the author. Sorry, it's been like 15 years ago. But uh, basically, one of the things he said is that if you exert an emotional or a physical reaction to a child with autism that is doing something you don't want them to do, you're positively reinforcing it because you have just become their cause and effect toy. You're basically their cartoon. And when you raise your voice and you change your facial expressions and change your tone and change your body language, you become their cartoon. You become their, oh, hey, I can push this button. And that happens. And so it really is works against the goal of, of that child being motivated to not repeat that behavior. It's actually positively reinforcing they're repeating that behavior because they think it's fun. They can push a button and they get that reaction. Yeah. So that piece is super duper important. But also with, with our caregivers, what we want to do is really train them and equip them with, with uh, applied behavior analysis techniques that also work very well for positively motivating these kids to, to behave and do the things they're supposed to be doing. And like my daughter has, like I mentioned, she's learned how to control herself fairly well. And there's a lot of self-esteem and and just feeling good about herself that comes with that. You know, oftentimes after a big behavior, they feel remorse and they feel terrible and they'll apologize and say they love you. And, you know, they they don't like being in that space either. So we have to realize it's it's not, you know, it's not good for them either. And one of my realizations as a parent is as hard as it was for, for me and, and her stepfather to go through all of this. Um, it's a lot, it was, it's been a lot harder on her. Mm-hmm. I mean, we think we suffer, but I think our kids are suffering multiple times over what we experience as parents. So just, you know, realizing that as well. And that brings more of a compassionate view and, um, you know, approaching it medically helps too because you're realizing there's underlying imbalances. The gut, of course, imbalances are, are as you mentioned, linked with a lot of different mental health disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar, and anxiety, and boy, you name it, depression. 
all of those have been addressed successfully just through diet change and gut healing techniques like the GAPS diet, the gut and psychology syndrome diet. Um, and really, you know, targeting the neurotransmitter balance, you can do that with cannabis as well. We know, you know, CBD is great for kids that are suffering depression or motivational disorders because it can it increases the serotonin and gets them feeling better and feeling more motivated. Um, you know, THCA, CBDA, those are great for inflammation. So THCA is actually the first thing we started my daughter on. Yeah. Um, Golden's Organic Healing Oil. And that was, you know, his... He touted his oil as one of the best things for pain. His wife had had uh, weaned off of morphine after breaking her back in several places in a car accident mm. in that oil. And that's what we started my daughter on. And it immediately de-escalated her behaviors. Just, just like that. No intoxication, no nothing. Wow. So, you know, all the, and as we learn more cannabinoids and we learn more, yeah. you know, actually get research on what they're doing in the body and what we can expect of their effects, I think we're going to find even more jewels in there so yeah and i mean what you brought up earlier about cbg mm -hmm. um i find that you know particularly interesting and maybe um this will be a good topic to to try to dive into that we sort of started on but how um thc cbd and now cbg um how they affect um, these situations differently. And then also, you know, like you mentioned, the acidic cannabinoids as well. Um, but I'm sure a lot of people are interested to hear about CBG, even though there's not a ton we know yet, just because mm -hmm. it's, you know, newer um, to the market. But um, what have you, what have you noticed between, we'll just stick to THC, CBD, and CBG right now. Um, what, what are some patterns that you've noticed in, in using those differently? Um, well, like I said, the target, I think if we covered the targets for THC earlier, mm -hmm, yeah. so targets for CBD, you know, things like depression, it increases serotonin, you know, great for inflammation through the TNFA pathway, um, great for pain through the TRPV1 pathway. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a CB1 and CB2 partial antagonist, if I'm quoting correctly, um, so it works differently than the CBG, which is the CB2 agonist. And with the CBG, we know by research that it's a GABA reuptake inhibitor. Another hallmark of autism is glutamate toxicity, which means too much glutamate, not enough GABA. So it's, it, it's improving the GABA levels in addition to being anti-inflammatory. There's other research I just read that, that supports that combining CBD and CBG together actually intensifies the anti-inflammatory effect of one or the other alone. So I mean, there's just so much we're still learning as far as the research, but you know the practical application pieces have become pretty clear just through my practice and working with different clients and seeing what what works for them. Um, CBDA, I heard that there was some research emerging on that uh, and having it improve the microbiome balance in our gut. You mentioned um, several times that there's this like puberty crisis that often happens. Is that a hallmark? feature of autism and well it's kind of an issue with a lot of different conditions that when mm -hmm. puberty sets in um, underlying issues then come to the surface but can you describe um, a little more about that process and kind of um, if if parents um, out there might be sort of concerned about that things that they should be thinking about as their children are nearing puberty 
um, and what changes they can expect to see in their child when that happens? Yeah. And, you know, every child is different. So yeah. there's, there's really no predicting. But I would say if, if, if a parent has a child that's limited or nonverbal, coming into puberty, they could really see some, some game-changing changes in their child. Um, unfortunately, puberty crisis is common to about 50% of kids with autism. And where we really see the hard situations where the parents are just being pushed to their limit and they don't know how to help their child, is when the child really can't communicate what's happening and what they're feeling and what they need. So yeah. that really is is tends to be the worst scenario that I see um, and lived through myself, actually. So just, you know, knowing this child is with autism, if they have autism, they already have rampant underlying imbalances, and then you start throwing hormones into the mix of that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times hormone imbalance, <laughs> it can become a pretty raging storm very quickly. So, And another thing that you mentioned that's become part of um, how you approach uh, sort of a holistic treatment is diet. Um, so how does diet play into autism? Are there, are there certain, um, well, I guess I'll just leave it at that. How does, how does diet play in and, and what do those sort of dietary changes sometimes look like? Yeah, diet, and it's not so much diet as gut health. Right, yeah. You know, gut is, I, in my opinion, gut is often the primary insult that causes autism regression in most kids. Uh, you know, you can look at history of kids with autism and oftentimes, you know, they had rampant ear infections and they were on antibiotics for long term, wiped out the microbiome. And then, of course, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the immune system is in the gut. And so that gets impacted. And then the immune system and the neurological system and the gut are all connected as well. And so that can be what starts this downward spiral of this triad of imbalances that are all interlinked that cause autism. So gut is huge. Um, as far as healing the gut, you know, some kids with autism have kind of a celiac type of syndrome where they actually have leaky gut because their microbiome has mm. been leaked out or they've been impacted by other insults in the gut. Um, you know, FUT2 mutation is really common in autism, and that actually is, is the pathway that's responsible for building and maintaining a healthy gut lining. And so you can do things like treat that with polysaccharide therapy that is the building blocks for the gut lining and help reseal the gut. And then you want to do some microbiome testing and see what their levels are like and supplement what they need. And hopefully, you know, if there's anything harmful, you can treat to get rid of that. Um, so it's baby steps. The first and foremost thing I do with autism is try to heal the gut. And CBG yeah. is a great, a great tool for that, as is CBD. You know, anything that's hitting those CB2 receptors that are so prolific in the gut and immune system can be helpful. Yeah, uh, yeah. So diet just depends on, you know, other genetic factors too, like what does their glyoxalate pathway look like? Are they metabolizing oxalates? That's another huge issue with autism. What, you know, some of them are phenol sensitive, some of them are gluten sensitive, some are casein and dairy sensitive. So it's just really about determining what is, what is that child's issue and how can we rectify it best with a really informed approach is best. And if, uh, if a child is phenol sensitive, does that then make them more sensitive to cannabinoids, given that cannabinoids have a phenol group in them? Potentially. 
Potentially. It, it just, it seems to depend and really the phenol heavy foods, you know, there's all different kinds of fruits and vegetables that, that can trigger that reaction in them. And are you but, thinking like all, like olive oils and, and different things like that? Yeah. Yep. All different mm -hmm. kinds of phenols and, and parents will actually do a phenol restrictive diet um, to see if they can improve those symptoms of that child. So sometimes it's trial and error, like, you know, pull this out of the diet and see how they do pull this mm -hmm. out of the diet how they do histamine is another huge issue with autism so you know limiting histamine containing and histamine liberating foods can be really helpful or starting you know supplementing with a DAO enzyme which is what that's the enzyme that breaks down histamine in our body that most kids with autism uh, have genetic mutations so they can't produce enough DAO enzyme so you know it can look like so many there's not like one diet for autism mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think yeah. that if that's what you're asking for, I'm sorry, but it just doesn't exist. <laughs> no, this is good because you're you're teasing out all of these these uh, little pieces, which is really what I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there was another element that just popped in my brain, and it may have just left me. Um, oh man, that happens rarely, but I had a question, and now it's uh, it's fleeted. It had to do with um, oh yeah. So all of these different, um, uh, like microbiome tests and genetic tests, do you have recommendations to people on, uh, I guess, tests that you trust um, um, or uh, manufacturers or anything like that, um, that if someone was wanting to go down that route of trying to start to get some biofeedback on uh, what's going on um, with their body or if it's their child, um, their child's gut, their child's um, genetics and everything like that to try to, you know, maybe then take that information to their healthcare provider if they're working with someone that maybe um, um, isn't as knowledgeable about, about all of that, if they can like take that data to somebody to um, try to interpret. But do you have recommendations for those, those sort of tools? Or on the flip side of that, are there things about these tools that you think people should uh, watch out for um, because uh, there's, especially nutrigenomics has become such a sort of buzzword kind of thing lately. I would imagine there's probably some bad actors out there trying to push tests that don't do anybody any good. <laughs> so, um, what are your thoughts on that? There's actually genetics, genetic tests that proclaim to be specific to a cannabis genetics that aren't really looking deep enough. They're just, you know, it's like the wise testing where it's looking at the liver metabolism of the different cannabinoids and trying to use that it's not looking at the neurotransmitter pathways and you know the bigger view is always more comprehensive is to take home there uh i've assessed from many different types of genetic tests um everything from you know 23andme and ancestry.com which you know it, it just depends on somebody's comfort level with how how they want to treat that health information if they're concerned about it being public use and being available that way those are not the tests to use then you'll want to go with something that's you know I, I have several physician tests that that I refer patients to as well and then you know if they can't come up with the saliva to spit in the tube there's some that do cheek swabs so it just it really depends on the situation mm -hmm. um, I don't have a bias I don't make money off of any of the test sales so it's you know whatever people want to use is fine with me uh, you do need to be careful, though, you know, and, and make sure you understand their policies and you understand what they're going to do with that data. Would be, you know, my forewarning there. For uh, for figuring out different levels, oat testing can be really beneficial. 
Um, Nutrival testing, I think that's Genova Diagnostics for both of those can be really helpful in kind of looking at what's happening in the body. How are things being metabolized? What are the intracellular nutrient levels looking like? Um, Ubiome testing is great for figuring out what the what is the, the levels in the gut and you know which it, it can really help to pinpoint which probiotic might be beneficial versus what might actually mm. make the situation worse. It's like it's really important. This is the take home: know the baseline before you start treating something. Know, you know, have some objective information about what's actually happening in the body, or you're just going to end up doing a lot of trial and error and probably not get. The, res the results, at least not as quickly as if you're taking more of an informed approach. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. And you could be, uh, you could try a bunch of stuff and then jump into testing later, and then you don't know is the snapshot I'm looking at a result of what we've been doing, or mm -hmm. is it has it changed at all? And this is how where it started from. Um, so that's that's a really good point if you're gonna um start really diving into the the nuts and bolts of all of this stuff you really really do want a baseline otherwise you have no way to know what's what's done what and whether you've you've made much progress at all other than relying on behavior but you know like we said behavior can be misleading um you don't necessarily know what's going on in someone's body just based on their behavior mm. um theoretically it could be possible to improve behavior but that person is still in pain or suffering in some way. Um, so, um, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so what's the, um, I guess the future timeline for autism safe haven, like where are you at now and what's the sort of more immediate future look like and, um, how can people, um, I guess, reach out and, and support that, that effort and learn more? Well, uh, our website, autismsafehaven.org, is a great place to start. And there's, I did a 17-minute video on there that you can watch, and it explains a lot of the science behind autism and talks about my journey with my daughter um, and how that's the inspiration for it, and also, you know, into some of the nitty-gritty details about the model. Um, right now, we're in fundraising mode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so doing a lot of interviews and trying to get the word out there. So thank you again for, for having me on today to talk about this. Um, and so once we get enough funding together, we're going to launch this first home and, you know, through John Patrick University, which we're faculty for, um, they're helping with finding research funding and we want to research it and prove the model, prove the cost efficacy of it, and then duplicate it in every legal state. And then there's a phase two that we're trying to build as well. That's more of a community model. So like my daughter is to the point where her behaviors are pretty well stabilized and I don't necessarily relish the idea of having her around really highly behavioral kids again because I think it's going to cause her to regress so we want to have a second phase where these kids that are ready can move on to more of a community model that's really focused mm -hmm. on building their potential building their quality of life and we're thinking like a big property and they can learn how to work with animals and you know, job skills learn how to grow their own food and grow their own medicine and maybe even something like culinary skills so that we can really just continue to build on this foundation that we're that we're offering them through helping to mitigate what is limiting that process. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um that's really cool to think about that, you know, this becomes a um a process flow that um you 
use the the first phase, the the primary care home that that you've talked about, um, just to try to get things under control. And then when things are under control, then people can graduate onto this the this next phase of like, okay, now that you're under control, how do we, you know, maximize your potential as a person? Um, yeah, that's great. And I don't I don't know if we covered or not but how old is your daughter now Uh, my daughter turned 18 in april so she's an adult and i'm fully ready as (laughs) her mom to step (laughs) right now i'm currently still uh, still her primary caregiver and i'm ready to step back from that role and let her start spreading her own wings and become a little more independent Um, And so, you know, that's part of what Autism Safe Haven is doing is helping parents with this transition. You know, if they are in crisis, we have a place for them where they can feel good about where their child is living and and feel good about the resources we're providing. And then also see how it it can help them build an adult, you know, life that's as independent as possible. And so it's really kind of an all-inclusive program. And there is a really easy way that, that anyone can support our program and also benefit from cannabis. And that's through um, our product line, unityformulas.com, where uh, 100% of, of my commission is being donated to Autism Safe Haven. And we have really targeted formulations that might help autism. Like we have a sleep formula, we have a anxiety formula, we have a neuro support formula. It's got that CBG in it and some nursing to help it get up into the brain. Um, and so that's that's just a great way to to support our program. You know, if if you feel like you could benefit from cannabis and you want to support us, how you can, and that's a great way to do it. Nice. And yeah. a question that's just popped in my mind um so uh backtracking a little bit here but so when your daughter went through puberty crisis approximately how much time transpired before you got a decent handle on um how to utilize cannabis and cannabinoids um and and to get her where she could you know pretty much stabilize herself and and regain that control um how much how much time did that take and do you think knowing what you know now that you could trim that if you could go back in time with what you know could you trim that time down even more oh most certainly i i could certainly trim down the time it took to find her optimal regimen it 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 was trial and error Um, You have to understand, I was fairly new to cannabis when she went into puberty crisis. I was using it for my own health issues, which I know we talked about in Mm -hmm. interview. Well, and I was I was going to ask about that. How did how did the timing? So once again, go listen to our old um, conversation. But Jano's in a car accident and had uh, a series of health issues happen where you're in a pretty bad state at the same overlapping with all of this that was that was going on. Yes. And actually, I kind of feel like it was almost a precursor to my daughter's and and probably may have increased the severity anyway of her rebellion because I was in a weakened state. And and so I was in a state that she felt I was able to be challenged and she fully went after my authority. And, and, you know, that was definitely part of it. But uh, I, I my health collapse occurred in 2012, um, and it was immune autoimmune. I was diagnosed lupus, 
I started cannabis therapy a year and a half into those treatments just because I didn't opioids, you know, going down that opioid death pathway. And as a nurse, you see the end stage of that and it's horrible. So I wanted to avoid that. And it came on board and actually started rebuilding my immune system and got me off of the pharmaceuticals and serial converted my autoimmune disease, which is unheard of with the mainstream. Yeah. To this day, I'm still negative for lupus. It never recurred. Wow. So that was huge. And I was just coming out of that. It was 2014 um, or so when uh, my daughter started cannabis therapy. I think it was the fall of 2014. And it was like the spring of 2014 that I had discovered it for pain and discovered what it was doing with my immune system. And then she started really escalating her behaviors. And I thought, boy, we should try this, this with her as mm -hmm. well. So that's kind of how that happened. Um, we did see immediate improvement. So we were using sublingual tincture with her. Onset is 10, 15 minutes for her. Um, so we would see her behaving and then we'd give her the tincture and we could see it de-escalate. So like I said, she was going from, you know, up to three hours of full tilt meltdown tantrum to she's starting to ramp up. Let's give her some of the tincture and then she calmed down. And, you know, what is THC great for? Pain and inflammation. So to me, you know, and, and we learned a little bit later on through having a caregiver that suffered PMS and kind of understood it, that she was having really bad PMS symptoms. And we started tracking her behaviors in that time of the month. Mm. It would spike, spike, spike. So that was a process of figuring that piece out as well and figuring out like, oh, she's presenting like she's having a migraine during her PMS. And she was diagnosed PMDD eventually. Uh, but the cannabis piece, you know, I began growing and trying different strains with her. And to this day, her regimen can look really different day to day. She wakes up in the morning. I talk to her. I try to get a sense of where she's at, how she's feeling. Is she having pain? Does she seem moody? Does she seem energetic and happy? Or does she seem down? And I will custom blend her morning capsule according to how she looks and how I think, mm. you know, she looks and, and what she might need. And, and her morning capsule is THCA, CBG, CBD, both immune and pain. Um, I'm missing a compound. But yeah, it's, it's a bunch of different things. And then her evening is THC, THCA, um, and CBN, and beta-carophylline, which of mm. course cannabinoid so it's kind of a cannabinoid, kind of a terpene. You got to make up your mind about that one. But, um, you know, we all switch it up from a, a more euphoric strain if she's seeming moody and kind of down to a pain strain if she's, you know, suffering. She's saying she has a headache or something's hurting. Um, so it, there's like a dozen different tinctures in our cabinet and I mix and match them just according to how she looks on any given day. <laughs> so it's very complicated. And uh, this is what I teach parents to do though. And I teach parents that the goal is to kind of find a regimen where you're giving it a couple times a day in a capsule and they've got good baseline symptom management. But if there's a day that they're more painful, more anxious, more depressed, more behavioral, whatever it might be. You can also use it sublingually throughout the day to, to manage those breakthrough symptoms. So it's very flexible, which is wonderful. Yeah, and, and where I'm going with this is I'm sure that if someone's listening to this and they're thinking about, um, you know, what this sort of uh, program would look like, mm -hmm. um, I'm sure one thing that's on, especially if there are parents listening that have children with autism, I'm sure one thing they're thinking about is like, well, um, 
what's the commitment to try to figure out if cannabis and cannabinoid therapies are going to uh, be helpful or beneficial, or if a child enters um, an autism safe haven, you know, realistically, how long might it take to get through, you know, these periods of crisis and help, you know, instill some of these tools to reach some levels of stabilization mm-hmm. um, and that sort of thing. So that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from is thinking through that of, you know, um, you know, like you mentioned that there are some immediate things um, that you might notice. And then um, uh, there's also this secondary process that you've talked about this entire time of trying to rebalance uh, things in the body mm-hmm. that would take time to do. Um, like you said, with the, the gut microbiome, you know, if you're having to, you know, essentially rebuild it, um, cause you've been on antibiotics or whatever, um, you know, that takes time. And so it sounds like there's this multi-dimensional thing going on within this treatment program that, um, um, it's sort of uh maybe if if there are people listening that are trying to understand some of the stuff that you know maybe you will um get probably that immediate relief that i think a lot of parents that are in similar situations that you're in are really desperate for but they've mm-hmm. been dealing with crisis mode for a long time um and they themselves you know are um maybe getting into an unhealthy state mentally or whatever just because of the stress and anxiety and all this sort of stuff and so they really want you know, something that's, everybody wants the quick fix. Um, but, uh, you know, trying to think is like, is this something that, you know, is going to, that they're going to have, I guess, have the patience for, I don't know, maybe that's the way I'm thinking about it. Um, when they've been through so many things, they might be kind of skeptical. Well, yeah. And it's understandable that autism parents are skeptical. I mean, we hear so many different things, try this, try that, try this, try that. Right. But you know, I've worked with thousands of patients over the years as a nurse helping to guide and optimize medical cannabis outcomes for kids with autism. And I'm trying to think, I can maybe pinpoint 10 of them that really didn't see enough benefit to continue. Yeah. And the benefits at first could be more targeting, like, oh, there's this escalation, we need to de-escalate. Mm-hmm. It might not be as targeted on what's happening underneath and what more might they need, but it's right. a point. And it's, it's meeting that priority goal, which is get my family out of crisis. I want my kid to stay living with us. I want my other children mm-hmm. and the parents and the caregivers to be safe. I want my child to be safe. I want them to have quality of life. I mean, it can achieve all of those things fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, as far as getting in there and balancing what's happening underlying autism sometimes a lifetime is not enough to do that and we have people yeah. with autism for that reason so you have to be really realistic about the goals as well and just realize it is doing the underlying work and my daughter over six years of her using cannabis in co- combination with other holistic approaches like the nutrigenomics and you know addressing addressing other medical issues that she has she has progressed from at, at four, 13, 14 years old, she was second grade level academically. Mm-hmm. She was largely nonverbal. She didn't start speaking until age 10. And at that point, it was like one or two word utterances. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was in crisis 
obviously not functioning, not doing her chores, not on any kind of regimen, you know, not, she wasn't doing anything that helped her build self-esteem or build her self-worth at all. Yeah. Um, now at 18, she's a fifth year senior. She's going to graduate high school next, next June. In fact, this year she's mostly wow. taking electives. She just needed four credits to graduate. She's going to have the option of going to college if she wants to. Um, she's an entrepreneur. She's starting her own YouTube channel and Etsy business. And we're teaching her right now some of the foundational how to manage right. a business aspects. And then we're going to jump into that for her. Um, you know, her quality of life is consistently pretty good. We definitely still have days where she struggles, where she's having a lot of pain, where she just wants to stay here in her dark room and not you know, be subjected to light because of headaches or not be out and about with people. But overall, she's very social. She's got a couple of great groups of friends that she loves to go and hang out with and spend time with and interact with. Um, as far as her communication, she and I are having conversations, like full conversations for the first time in her life. The last couple of years, that's kicked in. So this has all happened gradually. And when you look at it from, okay, this is where she was six years ago. This is where she is now. It seems like, wow, she's made all these bounds. Mm -hmm. But slowly and deliberately and over time. And we caught her imbalances with cannabis at 14. So, you know, I've seen so many parents that started cannabis much earlier in life before those imbalances and that hole that is dug in your body as you're continuing to build yeah. up imbalances and those kids respond much more quickly. So there's so many, once again, individual factors that play into how quickly it can occur, how quickly it can happen. Um, you know, other integral parts of this program are that we have nurses coming in, consulting with the patients, figuring out what regimen they need to be on to get them feeling good as quickly as possible. And a lot of times weaning the pharmaceuticals is really key to that because you're bringing them out of that pharmaceutical haze. Mm -hmm. um, and giving them the opportunity to have quality of life. And so that's a big piece of it too. Um, yeah, I mean, part of this reminds me. Sorry, again, it's just like, well, it depends. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I know. That's, I mean, that's the case with medicine and health and, you know, everything in life. But, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to, to kind of wrap this up on a, a really optimistic note, I think, um, what one thing this kind of makes me think of is, um, it's it's almost like when you when you get these things dialed in, when you have a child who's been nonverbal and then, you know, now you're having conversations. I mean, that's an awakening. That's like you're, you know, getting to get to know your child and see this expression of life um, that may not have happened otherwise. Um and so I don't know. It's it's a really exciting uh, thing to think about um, that hope um, that's there. That there are other ways to approach the situation, um, and that if a parent um, you know is listening to this and they're in the cycle of dealing with psychiatric drugs and things and feeling really um, disparaged about you know, this whole situation and they see their child suffering and, um, you know, all these sort of things to just to know that there are um, alternatives and that the science is rapidly evolving um, around this and a lot of other things because autism is so 
interconnected to so many other things in medicine that's sort of being fleshed out and, and actively studied now. Um, and so, you know, I guess with that, I, I just find the work that, that you're doing and, and taking your experience of life and, and trying to extend it to other people in similar situations, it's very hopeful. And I, I get really happy and excited to think about these awakenings that, you know, mm -hmm. more people out there um, you know, we'll be having conversations with their kids when they thought maybe they never really would, you know, or seeing them like take on projects and passions and having businesses and really living like really, you know, um, you know, just being fulfilled. Um, that's, uh, super, super exciting. And I hope that anyone listening, um, can, you know, that's in that situation can feel that hope. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, by listening to you talk, they'll, you know, look into more about what you're doing and, and learn about it. Cause that's, that's really exciting. It makes me think that there's a movie called awakenings uh, that yeah. I love. Have you yeah. seen it? Yeah. About the, the catatonic uh, patients that, yeah. that received dopamine. I was going to bring that up. Darn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, it's such a great movie and it, it but you know, there are some beautiful moments in that movie and it, I mean, it's based on, on real life. Um, but in a way, you know, particularly, um, like with these nonverbal kids and, you know, or that, or that they're in so much pain that communication is very difficult. I mean, it's a, it's, it is a sort of parallel situation that, um, mm -hmm. you're trying to free them from all of this sort of baggage that their body has, you know, sort of put on them uh, so that they can shine through. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just, I guess with that, thank you for the work that you're doing and, and sharing that with everybody, because it would be so easy for you to figure these things out and then just live your life and just be happy with what you've achieved for yourself, which would be totally fine. And no one could blame you for doing that. But the fact that you're trying to take that further and share it with others is, is really great. So thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. It, and, you know, my work, it is a little bit selfish because it actually gives purpose to everything my daughter and I experienced and all of that trauma. So it's very therapeutic. You know, I, I, I love being able to help others with what we've learned. It, 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 it makes me feel like that all happened for a reason, you know, yeah. and, and giving hope is, is just so rewarding in itself. Um, you know, it's actually, it's, it's so funny because it's gotten to the point where I'll hear a patient testimony and I'll be, oh, that's great. And they'll say, you don't seem very excited. And it's like, well, it's what I expected. You know, it's. <laughs> right. And, and this is usually what we see. So, oh, you got rid of your cancer. Hey, great for you. So, you know, I'll change the subject. I'll be like, wait a minute. We just told you. <laughs> Aren't you? Oh yeah, I'm excited. That's great. But I think part of it too is, you know, those, the patient outcomes are what fed my passion and fed my commitment to follow patient needs first and foremost in this industry. And I can't get any more, any more passionate. I'm, I'm full up. <laughs> so that's part of it too. Is like, yep, my passion is, uh, I, I, <laughs> I'm up You're to all my, in. I can't take any more passion. <laughs> so, I'm going to explode. And I love it. And, uh, you know, highly encourage any, any parents of a child with autism to look at cannabis um, you know, especially since mainstream does not have a lot of good options to treat autism at all and, uh, and find people to work with your child who believe in your child, uh, 
daughter in second grade was labeled mentally retarded, unable to learn or process or retain information with a, a recommendation that they put her in, you know, the lowest functioning classroom, which is just glorified babysitting, literally no academic focus. They didn't think she could learn. And <laughs> it didn't resonate with what I believed of this child who I saw would go up to my computer and Google water slides and roller coasters at four years of age. Like, don't tell me my child can't learn. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> she can. It's just they didn't know how to teach her. And same thing with physicians saying, I'm sorry, there's nothing to do here. Well, I'm sorry, I disagree. Find somebody that agrees with you and listens to you and sees the potential in your child. That is paramount. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, this has been a, another great conversation. Um, one of, I know many, especially as we, you know, get to work at, at JPU and there's also the Institute of Cannabinoid Medicine that we're, um, you know, sort of founding members in there too. So there's all sorts of um, awesome collaborations and education work that we're going to be doing in the near future. So yep. um, thanks for being willing to come on again. Um, let people know one more time, because it was quite a few minutes back that we uh, covered how to find you, but just repeat for everyone listening one more time, um, the website, how to, how to find Autism Safe Haven, how to donate, all that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, and so if you want to find out more about me, my daughter, our story, my roles in the industry, including, you know, work with patients, contracts, um, you know, formulating products, teaching at JPU, that's my media kit website, which is janachampagne.com, really easy. Cool. Um, Autism Safe Haven is, you know, there's a great, lot of great information and detail on there about this model. It's autismsafehaven.org. If you want to donate, there's a donate button right on that website. Um, if, uh, if you want to try out my formulations that are feeding autism safe haven with the profit, it's unityformulas.com. So those are great places to start. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone that's listening, I hope you've enjoyed it. hope you've learned something. If you want to learn more about cannabis, um, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book that's now available. Second edition is, is out. Um, and you can also go to CACpodcast.com and find our episodes or catch up with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, or LinkedIn. It's expanding. Um, it's a, becoming a mouthful to, to get out there. Um, but curious about cannabis, look us up. You'll find us. Um, maybe yeah, yeah, thanks so much for tuning or, in. Or come in and attend my class because your book, Curious About Cannabis, is the textbook for my course at John Patrick University, which is SCI 305 CBD and Cannabis Formulations, launching January 2021. JPU.edu for that. <laughs> there we that's, go. What's going to do? <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, I was I was holding back on that, but yeah, I'm really 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 stoked that um, the Curious About Cannabis book has made its way into to college courses. Um, that's that's what I always hoped for. So. Um, that's super exciting. I'm glad that it's, it's been valuable to you and yeah, folks, um, yeah, check out the courses that, uh, JPU has in store. Um, it's really exciting stuff that they're, they're working on. They've really assembled some, some great people, uh, that are very, very passionate about, um, teaching about cannabis and cannabinoids to, you know, really make, um, I guess I should explain, but, um, JPU has both, um, undergraduate level cannabinoid uh, cannabis classes and a master's uh, specialization in cannabinoid sciences. So you can actually get a master's degree in, um, oh gosh, don't let me screw it up, but it's uh, integrative and functional medicine. 
with a specialization in cannabinoid sciences. Got it. Concentration. Cannabinoid science. I think. Concentration. Yeah. Specialization, yeah. concentration, same thing. Cannabis or endocannabinoid science, I believe, is how they're terming it. So yeah. Um, so yeah, go to jpu.edu to learn more about that stuff. And if you want to uh, take classes taught by Jana, myself, and some other really awesome people, um, that's one way to do it. Um, anyway, thanks so much for tuning in. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye bye, everybody. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers.
Bye-bye. Thank you.